All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kuhler. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard. I'm your host. And today I'm thrilled to talk to two seasoned veterans of the nonprofit sector here in Calgary. They're both executive directors of helping services, helping agencies that help vulnerable people deal with and overcome some of the challenges that they might face in life. So today I am thrilled to be chatting with Patricia Jones. She's the CEO of Catholic Family Services here in Calgary, and she's been with the agency for something like 27 years, which is a remarkable feat in and of itself. But starting as a counselor and moving up into the executive director position, she she's probably one of the most passionate people that you're going to meet uh, until you put her right beside Carlene Donnelly, who's the CEO of Cups, and together they are a dynamic force. Carlene is the executive director at the Calgary Urban Project Society, better known as Cups, where she's been in a variety of roles for almost 25 years. And so between Patricia and Carlene, we've got more than 50 years of leadership experience in Calgary directly working on and impacting the lives of vulnerable people. Uh, These two are, a, like I said, a dynamic force to be reckoned with. And when they team up, as they have recently, their two organizations have started some really interesting collaborations to try and reduce some of the barriers for access to services that vulnerable people face in our community, as well as increasing the efficiency and the effectiveness of the services that they're delivering. And so we dig into the power of collaboration And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Patricia and Carlene as much as I did. Awesome. Well, we're here today to really explore um, some interesting topics around power in the nonprofit sector, uh, power in the helping professions, which both of you have tons of experience in. You're both seasoned professionals. You're both executive directors of local nonprofits doing some pretty amazing work uh, in Calgary. And so I want to maybe just Maybe if we just take a minute and give us a little bit of background, kind of the, the one or two minute story of how you found yourself uh, where you are today. Let's start maybe with you, Patricia. Yeah, I've been at this agency 27 years, and I started actually when my daughter was six months old. And I took marriage prep, actually, from this organization, from the CEO at the time. And I remember at marriage prep thinking, I think I could work for that person. So the moral of that story is be careful. (laughs) 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 And 27 years later, um, I like our purpose. I like that uh, most of what we do is about empowering and supporting people. And why do I have this job? Eventually, they just give you one because they're like, she's not going anywhere. (laughs) You stick around long (laughs) enough, you get the keys. And you have and the, the most influence over culture. Yeah. We'll probably dig into culture a little bit um, today as well. Yeah. And Carlene, you've also have had a long run at your organization. I have. Uh, I've been at CUPS for 24 years, coming up to 25, so fairly close to Patricia. Um, I would say the same thing. I was, I was really kind of drawn just simply because it is a help and profession, and I felt I had some fairly significant uh, energies to give that. We very specifically at CUPS have a focus with really high-risk families and individuals, and that was a draw to me in the sense where if we're going to really do a different kind of work, uh, I wanted to do it to the, those that need it most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to dig into your guys' model, and you know, we were chatting before we started recording about kind of evidence-based and research and, and all of that, and you guys have really been on the forefront of that um, in the sector for the last decade or so, and so maybe we'll have some time to, to talk about that as well. Um, But why don't we start with why all three of us are sitting down, and that's because of some collaborative efforts that you guys have undertaken. And so can you fill fill the listener in on on what you're collaborating on and what maybe that that looks like? Well, definitely, I think uh, the appetite in Alberta over the last five plus years has been one of of lean, conservative resources. And uh, we looked at this as an opportunity. It was actually Patricia's 
uh, kind of brainchild, uh, but it was it just made sense. And I think when you look at collaborations, things that I would look for is what's going to be better by us doing this. Um, how does our values and priorities align, and what what's our really kind of agreed upon ultimate impact? So when I when we talked through those, really at the end of the day, it not only just made sense. I think we both come with a very strong vision to do better, way more with a focus than just more. If it eventually leads to more, that's that's fine. But it was really about looking at how do we do what we do better and does and doing it together, does that mean it will be better? So that's kind of the journey we're on is the the exploration of that. I think it fits the runway of what I see the next uh, many years being in, in the sense where there's only so many limited resources and how do we best use those for the people that come into both of our doors and literally take away the walls of them not having to go to 17 different places to get 10 different resources. Um, how do we do that from an efficient, humane, hopefully, uh, empowerment for our clients way, but also uh, to best use our resources to still actually meet the demand as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it used to be fascinating the the clients that would make their way to enviros and how many doors they had been through on the journey it's like there's got to be a better way than this like we've got to be um we're the ones in, in control of this journey and it seems pretty chaotic from the perspective of the like the the organizations and the people working there it seems chaotic i can't imagine for the people trying to access services the 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 stress that that induces. Patricia, what drove the desire to collaborate? Or what, like, what was, was there a final straw that kind of broke the yeah. camel's back? Because you've been doing it for a long time. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know what, this is, yeah. we got to do something different. Do you know what, um, both CUPS and CFS, I think in the last five years, developed uh, new strategic plans. And, you know, the history of nonprofits sometimes, the ones I've been involved with is a strategic plan is you get together for the weekend, you write on a flip chart, you throw it on a shelf and you get back wait to work the next year. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I think both CUPS and CFS really, really were thoughtful about the strategic plans, very clear. Um, and part of that is an environmental scan. And Carlene talked about the runway in terms of lean resources, um, needing to do things differently. And uh, the CFS, one of the ambitions in the CFS strategic plan is to be a uh, leader in collaboration and CUPS also has a very clear direction on on collaboration understanding that we only do so much and we want to stay in our lane and in order to serve people best we need to reach out to the people that do different services to offer that to the people we serve and honestly a year ago CUPS is three blocks from here I didn't even know Carlene <laughs> so and and I think you make a great point it is not up to the people we serve to navigate our system I think there's 198 nonprofits funded by United Way it's not up to our staff to figure out it's up to us as leaders to say what is an integrated service delivery model so when people are in the darkest hour of their life don't have the added trauma of navigating our systems so that's how this was born and honestly reaching out to Carlene who was same mindset and said let's do it let's try this yeah. Awesome. Now, keep in mind, I would say, we don't really know exactly the template of how to do this. No. <laughs> we're, we're kind of building the plane as we're flying in some ways. Uh, but I do, I agree I, with, with Patricia in the sense where access became and has always been a concern to both of us in terms of, are they having to knock on too many doors to really get a seamless integrated care for all of their issues? And even if there's one or two, is that really being uh, met as significantly as it can be? But also, it was that access of, are we asking the right questions at the right time? So instead of it being a transactional, uh, you know, service delivery on one issue or one one ask or even a short-term plan, how do we actually do way more um digging deeper into what the real needs are, what the root causes are, and why are they keep coming back to the same things in some cases, particularly for the, the clients that come to CUPS. Um, we really wanted to say, we're not doing good enough with our transactions in short term. Like, we need to get to the root of the problem. So I think we're building uh, more than just a navigation at the community level. I think we're trying to build, are we asking the right questions at the right time to get you really the help that you, you need for the root cause? Yeah, getting past the symptomatic, like the symptoms of these issues, which are, you know, tend to be the default thing that because they're the most visible, right? The most urgent kind of crisis moments. And we, we deal with those and then they just pop themselves back up. I mean, that's addiction in a nutshell, right? So the experience around that is when you see past addiction to see the symptoms or as, as a symptom and see the root causes, then you can fundamentally shift your approach 
as the practitioners, as the program to, you know, more effectively deal with it, which is sounds like that's the underlying goal here is to ask the right questions so that we unlock the real problems and, you know, deal with the symptoms and the crises and, and things as they occur. Um, maybe before we dig into the kind of nuts and bolts of the collaboration, let's back up a little bit. And I'm curious as to why we don't see more collaboration. What gets in the way of collaborative efforts in the sector? Because I joined, I came in in the nonprofit world kind of accidentally, as we sometimes do. And I looked around, I'm like, why are there so many nonprofits doing very similar work and not effectively really working together? Even interagency sometimes, you see a lack of collaboration across programs that effectively are, should be you know, pretty united in their, their approach. What are some of the barriers that you guys have experienced in the past or you, you see? I, th- I think there's two levels that I would say. I think there is a perception from the external uh, community that this is how nonprofits work. Um, and that is, uh, for the better part, just simply not correct. Um, it is very time consuming. It is, there's issues around client data, client sharing information, client consent. Um, there is different, there's, we have alone three databases. Uh, one is a health information uh, storage called Wolf Medical Database, which we technically, it's got walls, security walls up, and there's just, it's very difficult information to share. Um, everyone uses a slightly different database. Uh, we have no way, or we really have uh, as well limited resources to even track if we did share it, who's actually collecting that they follow through on things or do or have done this. So it's they're really what's happening on a collaboration basis for the better part, although there is better examples than, than this out there, but for the better part, it's simply referral in and out. And to some degree, at least project planning together in terms of gaps in, in communities and stuff. So it doesn't happen. And I think it really does come down to limited resources, uh, databases, client consent and client information sharing and uh, just resources to actually do that job. Mm-hmm. Um I think I don't think there's a universal definition of what collaboration is. So I think the nonprofit sector might push back with you and say, actually, we do collaborate. And I do think there's a lot of referral in and out. There's a lot of relationships. But what we're talking about is integrated service delivery, which is a different kind of collaboration, which is one doorway, one sheet of paper, one database, and the services of two organizations at your fingertips. Um, and I always give the example at Louise Dean Center, where we serve pregnant and parenting youth, around 20% are hovering or in uncertainty safe environments or are homeless. And we don't provide housing. So why should a 16-year-old, you know, parent have to access our services? And then we say, well, phone cops, you know. Um, so, it, but to Carlene's point, the resources required, Jeff, is is phenomenal because you're integrating two sets of organizations. Um, and it's, it's, it's two sets of cultures, two sets of data. So probably if you're going to ask me, like we have four seen, four staff between the two organizations that spend a day a week on this. Carlene and I probably spend a day a week. We have a project consultant working through because you want to do it right the first time. Um, and I think there's some key components that are, that are part of that. I think there's an alignment of values between both organizations, quite strong, particularly in terms of reverence for the people we serve. And I use that term because we really do believe the people we serve deserve to be treated with respect and humanity at, at a different level. Um, I think there's a willingness to park our egos and uh, or be aware of them and know where we're putting them <laughs> at the same time. And we do truly, I think our senior leadership are amazing. They do believe this is about the people. It's very client-centric. Um, so it really is ultimately understanding, probably because we've been around a long time, um, that it, it's almost it's it's almost irresponsible not to. Mm-hmm. Well, irresponsible and approaching unethical. Mm-hmm. Actually, like when you look at it from a right use of power perspective, we talk a lot about... To, um, the operationalization of power, taking the power you have and using it is, is an ethical practice. Like that has to be guided by our ethics. And you know, I've been in lots of organizations where I see the values on the wall and people look at them and like, yeah, they're there, but they're not exactly in the boardroom or they're not exactly on the front. Like they're not um, manifested in practice in the same kind of way. And so, but as soon as you do, as soon as you take the values off the wall and if it's client centered and you park that in the middle, well, then collaboration just naturally makes sense, right? It folds out from centering that that piece and so you know i push back a lot on organizations that say client-centered but their practice is incongruent with that it's like values have to be in practice they have to be behavioral they have to be things we do otherwise they're just you know nice pamphlets and nice nice brochures on the wall so you mentioned client-centered as a value what other values do you guys share what uh 
other other things that have kind of brought the two organizations together as far as what is the vision of this collaboration? Um, what outcomes are you are you hoping for? I'll just say first, um, just in fairness to this whole process, um, we are we, we are getting support from United Way to help with some of the contracted pieces of this, but all of the in-kind resources from our staff and Patricia and I and anyone else that we bring from finance or HR or marketing to the table is in-kind. And so I, in fairness, as much as I think it is about purpose and ethics and values, I also really have to say that until you have impact from such collaborations, it's hard to get funding. So not-for-profits are so, I still, and I say this, and it's part of perhaps my priority and, and values, but at the end of the day, nonprofits are really kind of forced to be very lean, and there's a lot of emphasis on funding going to client-servant interactions. So there is very, it's very difficult to really get people to understand that if you want people to do this level of work, you need to have a robust admin portion to be able to do it, to be innovative, to be collaborative. It takes a lot of resources, and it's literally going to cost us thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So just putting that out there in the sense where there still is a bit of a charity mindset that nonprofits should really give all of the resources directly to clients, which I'm all for, but that then does not lead into any kind of uh, or little resources for development of databases, <clears throat> strap plans, um, technology, those kind of things, reporting, that's right. Yeah. So that's, that's always really tough. But for me, the value of this is the impact. And I would say, you know, we share, you know, respect and, and dignity and value. I think, you know, for me, if, if the impact is going to serve the clients better, this is why we're here. Um, you know, uh, not-for-profits, their whole focus was to build humanity uh, in, in that resource at the community level that could really make it that there was no, um, you know, wrong door or hierarchy, that everyone had a chance for a quality life, and that uh, the fact that, and I, we would both support this, people are simply born into challenges within the, the family that they were born into, is not their fault at all. And really, if you don't have the same starting gate, you can't have the same finish line. So for people that have so many more challenges just simply by uh, who and where they were born, and those generational issues keep happening, they're just simply always behind. And our job in not-for-profits is to equal that playing field and give everyone the right and the chance to work and be, be moving forward to a quality of life. So I think we share that value without a question. And I think the step that I'd say, Patricia and I really should both share is we both feel we have so much to learn from the clients that walk in our doors to the people that volunteer, to the people that support us from our staff. I don't think you can ever be talking about the human condition. And if you ever think you know it all, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong sector to work. So I think we're both always learning and evolving and, and wanting to, to know more. And that takes really listening. It, it doesn't just take hearing. It takes really listening. And I think we're both always trying to, to do better by listening and engaging with different you know, levels of our, of our organizations. And this has been just that. I've learned so much even from our collaboration in the last nine months that I wouldn't have known staying within my own four walls. So I think there's so much to benefit ourselves to be better humans in this world by doing this kind of work. Uh, but our vision has got to be, and I think this is definitely the thing we share, is that a vision is to do better by those that really do need more support than the average Joe. Yeah, and I would say, you know, um, vulnerability and transparency. I was about to great. ask about the ego because the counterpoint to the ego is a sense of vulnerability or a little yeah. bit of vulnerability to say, you know what, we can't do it on our own. We don't have the resources to effectively meet these needs. We need to partner. We need to collaborate. Well, and also, you know, you're opening up, you know, you're you're opening your skeletons in your closet and you're you're giving trust. So, you know, they're, you know, and I know even with our staff, you know, both both CUPS and CFS offer childcare centers. You know, and so I, I know that there's been support to each other where, you know, we phoned their staff and said, oh, man, we crapped the bed on this woman. And they went, oh, don't worry. We've done that, too. Don't worry. <laughs> like there's this, you know, we, we're in it together. We can make st mistakes together and we can serve each other. Um, and I think there is a transparency of can you help me out with this? And we do this really well, but we really suck at this. And they're like, that's OK. We'll support you. Um, so I think there's just like this is who we are, warts and all. And. And there's an acceptance about, but we're still here to do it to make sure that the people we serve get the most effective and efficient service possible. Yeah. 
So I think I think we've just jumped. So the building a plane while it's flying is, an, is, a, is a good metaphor. That's where, where you guys are at. I would absolutely agree. And I think at the end of the day, one of the things that has been probably the resilience of it all is humor. So I think when you can laugh at yourself and, you know, sometimes you're not the smartest person in the room and quite often we're not. Uh, but there's, there's, there's something I think that Patricia hit on about vulnerability, but I think the counter kind of cushion to that is humor. And I think we really do uh, make this a fun process. Uh, we don't really 100% know what we're doing, and that's what makes it so so amazing in some ways, right? But I think we're both uh, pretty loving the term bold and brave. We tend to think that gives us a bit of a cape and makes us feel better for not being the smartest people in the room. <laughs> and But I think it's, uh, it is a fun adventure, and I, I do personally believe uh, 100% it's going to make the, the client navigation easier. And I, I'm really proud of that. Like if I leave any legacy, I want it to be one of shared um, collaboration to make it easier for navigation of clients. And if, if I can leave that, it's better than if I have turned cups into a, you know, another $100 million organization. That means, that means little at the end of the day. But if you can actually say you made access better, you served them better, you got to the root of the problem, and you've actually taken down walls and you've produced a stronger community, uh, that would be a heck of a legacy. Yeah, no, I agree for sure. Um, what, what exactly is the the collaboration can you i know that it's moving target probably um, but it's integrating services and so can you walk us maybe walk us through the story or a story of a typical client who may have accessed one of your organizations in the past and what the challenges might have been about accessing services and why this collaboration or how you hope this collaboration solves sure um so we have a fundamental fundamental hypothesis that if we can integrate service delivery, it's better for the people we serve with better outcomes. And we are piloting with one or one, one, um, one of our programs called Never Too Late, which is an adult GED program that is funded by United Way. Um, we have a program out in Bowness and a program out in Forest Lawn. And what it is, it's exactly that. It's it's high school or a GED with a community wraparound component. There's a social worker involved. And actually, our GED program has been shown to be significantly more successful than average ones, mostly because of the social work component, the community development component. And on average, the people we serve often are we just did a study that said they um, make on average $1,000 more a month following the program. So what we did notice, though, in bonus, and I'll give you one example, we had a student who uh, graduated from Never Too Late. We were so proud of this person, and they were living in their car. So initially, I will tell you with some shame, I was walking around the community saying, aren't we awesome? And then this person actually didn't thrive after, to Carlene's point. They come back around because really... A high school education doesn't help you if you don't have a house. Um, Catholic Family Service doesn't want doesn't do housing. We don't want to do housing. That's not what we do well. So what if this person came in and got assessed through the CUPS resiliency tool, which I'm sure Carlene will talk about, and you realize the gap is they said, I want to do Never Too Late. I want my adult GED. But through the assessment with the integrated care coordinator, they said, well, that's a great idea, but actually you need a house first. Well, why don't we get you that first? So we actually went and fundraised in the community, did a gala last year. I phoned Carlene, and this speaks to trust, two weeks before the gala and said I have, it actually wasn't my idea. It was uh, Jessica, one of our staff. I said, I have this crazy, crazy butt idea. <laughs> what do you think? And she said, okay. <laughs> and you, again, it's the flying the plane or uh, building it while you're flying it. And we received the record amount of money to launch this. Um, and so we've been working since last June to launch a co-developed Never Too Late that is actually currently running at CUPS. And we're in week three and 30 people have registered. So, and we've added an enhancement to this program, Jeff, which is there's on-site childcare by CUPS staff. There's a meal by CUP staff. There's the CUP's integrated coordinator. Our staff are on site. We have volunteer uh, tutors. And about 13 of the 30 that have signed up are CUP's clients who never would have accessed Never Too Late in the community. They never would have. So we are. We have a very robust evaluation framework on that. And we're looking forward to the testing and the pivoting in real time. We're really supporting staff to say, "Tell we need to hear from you. What needs to change? If it needs to change from week one to t week two, let's change it. So that's kind of what we're in the middle of right now. It, I, I will just concur in just that specific point. Uh, it's just amazing to see so many of our clients at CUPS access that because 
the resiliency tool that we developed was based on uh, Alberta Family Wellness Initiative's website with the Palix Foundation and the Center of the Development Child with um, Harvard University. And we looked at, you know, all that information of what happens when people have had traumatic experience for a long time, particularly when toxic stress is, is a factor. And we really realized that even if people are giving a house or even more successful to get a GD, they're really, uh, not GD, we're successful in getting their social support, supports done. They're still poor. They still really don't have enough money to have a quality of life. So it's really that focus for quality of life. So launching this program and seeing so many of our participants uh, come in and feel that they can do it. So a lot of people, particularly those that have the most challenges, don't always feel that they have the capability of doing such things. And I think sometimes in life, and it happens at our level and above and our level and beyond, but it really sometimes is your own mind that cripples you in terms of what you believe you can do. Um, and it's that vulnerability. And I think when you already feel you're vulnerable and looked, you know, unfavorably upon, it it can really hinder your ability to try anything new. But the wraparound supports and the, the tutors and the, the teams from both, uh, we've heard universally that they felt that that made them feel they had enough support to do it. And if we can have such little differences in a program as literally as coming together and be able to give them that confidence that they can, then that really is the, the changing gate. Because if they can do this, they'll believe they can do the next thing. And so our resiliency tool looks at um, economic issues that's going on. It's a quick questionnaire. We developed it ourselves. It's a reliable, valid tool after going through a scrutiny of process and test and all those kind of fun academic things that researchers do, which we love. Uh, the University of Calgary Faculty and Nursing is our major partner in research, and they've been with us for over two decades, actually. So they've come on to, to with this tool, and um, it turned out to be quite a quite a process, again, not really knowing what we were doing, but knowing that we weren't getting to the root of the problem. So we looked at 13, 10, 13, best practices in the world and they were just either too complex to administer or too too long to do for the it's a self-report but it does look at social emotional a whole bunch of different factors economic uh health and mental health and then developmental for the kids so it gives us a pretty quick snapshot of from a one to five with one being the the most vulnerable um where people are struggling in and where they've actually figured some things out, even with all the chaos and stuff going on in their life. Um, so we celebrate from a strength-based what they're doing well first and, and use that as kind of the limp board, lynch board. But um, at the end of the day, what we're really trying to prioritize is the goals around where they need some help. So doing that and being able to be assigned a care coordinator and then setting your priorities to those goals that you need help with really allows him to say, okay, all this is getting addressed, so now I can focus on this. And so the response from our clients has been, and, and wonderful that anyone is doing these programs, but to be honest, has been um, so amazing to to know that it's then going to also eventually address the economic. Because if they can do high school, they can probably do something in trades or post-secondary or something else, right? So it's I find education is is the one of the best equalizers in terms of giving yourself confidence to believe that you can do things. So we're absolutely thrilled at that. That meant so much to us. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing um, hope and hopelessness and how important that is. I'm actually, I'm involved in a study or an outcome project right now with a local nonprofit, The Doorway. I don't know if you guys have heard of The, the Doorway. They're, they're quite small, quite niche, quite interesting um, model. And we had that big, you know, big whiteboard. What are the outcomes of this project? And the, because they see the whole person, it's really hard to pin down exactly what it is you're moving the needle on. Um, so we actually landed on hope and hopefulness. And there's some scales out there that measure hope. And so we've integrated that into the into the system, and it's just fascinating. And the client response has been amazing because it gives them, um, it makes the change process visible, which can be hard when you've been locked into poverty or you've been locked into addiction or you've been locked into homelessness for a long time it's hard to see those little changes and to feel them and to and to trust them and so i think probably one of the things that strikes me most about this collaboration what you're describing about the resiliency tool is that you're seeing the whole person so many programs see the addict side of this person see the homeless side of this person see the hungry side of this person and nowhere do they get seen as being a whole person and just and being you know worthy of you know all the care, yeah. all at once. Um, I think that that's a tremendous um, shift in the right direction. Um, so I'm thrilled just to hear all about well, that. Well, I think in the resilience tool, not only assesses where the gaps are, but they assess the assets. So it's the protective factors and the risk factors, and it's celebrating the, the things that are going well. Yeah, It balances so that right. deficit focus that we, we often get as, as organizations or, you know, we're funded to solve problems, right? We're not necessarily funded, 
funded to see assets and strengths and to help well, exactly. people and leverage I think those. Back to, you know, that student that was living in their car. I mean, we were so focused on the GED and that's what the resiliency tool has been a gift to this agency that CUPS has been so generous is, no, this is an assessment of a whole person and a whole person's life. And, and it, it has gaps like you would have Jeff or I would have, or Carlene would have. It's, these are not those people. These are our people. These are our families and our kids and our neighbors. So it's, it's a very respectful, reverent tool that's shared with the client. So they, they track it just the same. And what's cool about this as well is we are, um, we are, we are piloting the tool and the data is going in the CUPS database. It's, so there's just one, so this will be a shared data. So we're developing, you know, data sharing degree agreements, all, all the stuff you got to sign to get all that stuff done. But it's been quite, it's been quite fun. Yeah. I would say the one thing I would add is we also in the right context and not necessarily in this program, but we also administer the adverse childhood experience uh, questionnaire. And as we know, that's a 10 questionnaire that's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not a tool. It's, it's really just used as kind of a baseline. But what we use that for is really just to have discussions with people, particularly those that have come from a lot of challenges, um, around how their brain has developed as a result of the experiences in their childhood. And it, that was, for me, the changing point probably about 10, 12 years ago uh, when, I, when I, I've had a long relationship with the Paleox Foundation and with the Harvard University. But it was literally looking at so many of our families and individuals that would actually be doing quite well and be stable in a home and involved in their community, their kids are doing well, and then six months to three years later, back at our door with, um, like in many cases, nothing. And that became very, very disheartening. And I truly remember saying, we got to do better. Like, this is terrible. If we can't be proud of our transactions. This, this isn't enough. So I can honestly start saying when we started that journey to understand how brains do develop and what derails it, it was literally an aha moment to me. Like, I actually get this now. This was a trajectory that nobody could have changed in this person's life unless they actually stepped outside and learned new skills and abilities and actually really took acknowledgement. And we have discussions with some of our particularly our parents, but individuals as well, about that. And it's incorporated into our nurturing parent program. It's incorporated into our care coordination and integrated care. The shift in the clients themselves is honestly just emotionally just outstanding. Like they actually get it that they're just not um, a bad person or screwed up or, you know, like this woman literally said to me, this literally validates that I'm not just completely she used a different word, but screwed up, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And she said, and she goes, and it's the first time I actually have forgiveness from my role as a mom. And it like, to me, that's not just hopeful, it's validity. It's saying, hey, all these really tough things happened to you. It actually changed the way your brain looks and works. But we can, on a positive note, help you learn new skills and abilities. It's going to be harder, but you can actually prevent it in your child. So, I mean, the hope that comes from that and the, just the validation, I think, is so important because you're born into a really, really tough home and then you just always think you just don't measure up to other people and why, you know, what's wrong with me kind of thing. And it really shifts that to giving them that power to understand that a lot of what happened, well, everything that happened in their childhood is not their fault, but what they do about it, they do empower to change. Yeah, I used to talk a lot, and I talk a lot with, with people about meaning. Like, meaning is the, the most important and most potent motivator, the meaning or meaningfulness that we find in something. And the problem with something like, like my background's in addiction, so I'll use that as an example, but addiction gets pathologized. It's a problem versus, well, it's actually behavior that makes sense and it exists for a reason. And if you dig for those reasons, suddenly you can forgive yourself, like you say, for the choices you've made when you've been pursuing the addiction versus versus otherwise and find figure out what the, what, why there's meaning there and then be able to make sense of your journey. I think that's probably the biggest thing that client-centered practice, when we're doing a good job of it, when we're returning data, the resiliency tool, when we're turning it around and we're showing the client, does this make sense to you? Or how does this make sense to you? Is this helpful? And they get a chance to make meaning out of it. You know, I think that that's probably the most empowering thing that we can do. Because lots of times you hear that, let's go empower clients. And then staff are like, how do I do that? Yeah. Like, what do I do? It's like, well, you show them how, how their journey makes sense, right? And how they can impact it and the choices and the power they do have. And oftentimes in very powerless kind of places that they find themselves in. Well, and with addiction, I think, yeah, sometimes it is the best choice at the time if they don't actually have other tools or supports to make different choices, right? Yeah, we would never take away addiction without replacing it. 
with something more more powerful than that because otherwise you're doing a disservice um for sure okay maybe let's talk a little bit for nonprofit leaders so quite a few of the listeners are in leadership positions in education nonprofit healthcare um to this podcast and i'm curious about your kind of individual reflections any tips or learnings that you've had as a leader through this process of shifting into collaborative mode um, or just in general, you're both very experienced leaders um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and tips that you have for either aspiring leaders or current leaders who are wrestling with some of these issues around, I know we're not having the impact that we want to have and I see how we could collaborate, but there's barriers. Um, Maybe a bit of your own journey through that and any kind of anything that stands out for you as really important learning that can help accelerate somebody else's journey. I have kind of an interesting background. Um, I guess, to some, maybe. Um, uh, so my background, I, I have an undergrad and then I have both my master's in education and business. So I I think for me, it was really important that we have a, a path that really would be similar to project management and change management to really deliver on impact. How do we know we've made impact? It's a really abstract thing in, in many ways, right? So I say all the time, and I, I bring it to the table, is do we really understand what access looks like? And are we really doing it? Um, not only are we asking the right questions, but are we reaching them in the right venues and making sure that we're communicating in a way that they understand uh, that there's access to some of the things they need? And then the other thing for me is evaluation. How do you truly say you're proving A, B, and C? So I really have been quite uh, tenacious on, on that, but having said that, I think for me, if I was giving anyone um, advice as to leadership, I, again, can say, and it comes down to the equalization of power, to being able to listen, to be able to obviously, you know, think of kind of about the people come to the door as the, the experts, not yourself. Um, so at the end of the day, I think I'd tell people two things. Think outside the box stop even thinking of your own career as linear, like really blow it out of the water in terms of what role you'd be in that you never would have thought you would would be comfortable doing or qualified for. So I think as well, think outside the box in terms of that power shift. I actually think the client is the expert. They know way more about the challenges in our community uh, that have, have with their limited ability to find resources um, than I do. I go home every evening and I have the luxury of not having to know some of the things they know. So they are the expert. And I think if you look at it that way and then think, how do I shift a sector that has really been quite encouraged to keep within their own walls? Um, what would it take to shift that? And, and do I think I can do that? I think it's just really breaking down all the things you believe to be true today and challenging them again and again and again. So reinforcement of the challenges, not just asking yourself these ones. And then the other thing I would say is just don't be afraid to fail. Like you won't always be the smartest person in the room. You won't always be able to tell people everything they should do. People are humans and from your staff to your clients, to your volunteers, to your community, uh, people are flawed and are there for different reasons. And you have to be part of a team that everyone has an equal voice. So I think being, I think actually failing at things, if you give a great rationale, what I try and do with my staff, and I'm certainly not always successful at it, and I certainly am not perfect. uh, But I will say I try and whenever I pitch a new idea, give a really strong rationale for the client's benefit, what will be better in their for working conditions, and then what the ultimate impact goal is. And if I communicate that, and it works out, that's great. If it doesn't, I think there's a really, really good message to the people you work with when you do fail and you handle it well. It was similar to your your example today of why you had a good weekend. I think when you're able to manage challenges or difficulties in your life, or even, you know, at times thinking I have to, I have to be the one that always succeeds and I, I want to look like a good leader. I think yeah, a good leader allows himself to be vulnerable and to be wrong at times. So I think to me, that would be the big points for me. Can I, can I dig in a little bit? Do you have a, do you have a favorite failure? Do you have one that stands out from your career that you're like, Oh yeah, that was a, that was a lesson. That was a great. We, um, I'm a very, 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 yeah, I'm Manny. <laughs> Manny. Um, I think for me, the one that, uh, because it's very passionate to me, so I'm a big, big believer that regardless of the issue, I want to help everyone, particularly every unit of the family. So in cases where obviously if there was high risk or any type of criminal kind of 
serious concern or any child welfare issues, um, I would not say this, but we always want to try and help every family unit. And so we tried to launch for a lot of our families where they were broken and the dad was um, having challenges around anger issues or confrontation or things like that, that there was, uh, you know, an issue of safety in the home. We want, of course, dad not to be in the home, but I want to work with dad. We want we want to get to the root of the problem of what makes people not able to handle our emotions. And I think they're just as scared and, um, you know, broken in some ways as, as ever, anyone. And I don't think we do a great job socializing our men uh, in terms of how to communicate and express their emotions. And so we launched a father's program to try and look at uh, supporting fathers and our work. And the first one we launched failed epically. I would say they didn't come. Uh, when they did come, it didn't seem that meaningful for them. So it was in one of those things where we thought we were trying to find the perfect program, not a program that fits our demographic. So we took that away and went, huh, well, that was a real epic failure. Uh, but we really still wanted to do that work. So we actually pulled together uh, groups and, and had some discussions around what do you feel you need? If these are your challenges, what do you feel you need? And we thought we'd done that, but we did it on a much more deeper level. So the program that we run now is, is, uh, is considerably more successful. So that was definitely a learning point because it was so disappointing to me. It failed, not because we failed. I really, honestly, that wasn't the big deal. It was that we failed them. And we weren't doing the work that was so important to us and we felt was so needed. Yeah, and it sounds sounds like the failure might have been one of perspective in in that we often build things design things make decisions based on our perspective of the problems and the issues and the challenges and as soon as we center the clients and get their voice at the table we sometimes get that different perspective or that that client perspective which is going to be much more accurate than whatever we with our best intentions and i know i'm guilty of this all the time i'll be facilitating a workshop and it'll look like somebody's disengaged and and then they come up with the best question of the day and i'm like huh weird like i i often misattribute kind of what's going on for other people um and if it's like it's so easy to do it's so easy to fall into the expert kind of bias and that we were the experts were being paid to do this so we'll design it and then when it flops and this was one of my major issues with addictions treatment was that we would blame the client for failing treatment when it's always treatment that's failing the client and that that really stuck with me and helped motivate me to make changes to that system when I was in there um, and still drives me a little bit. But Patricia, how about you? Advice to leaders before we go down a rabbit hole of talking about addiction. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I just met actually with one of our senior leaders today and we are actually um, doing a staff meeting tomorrow. And she had said she was worried about unveiling something we were going to unveil. Um, and I said, what, why are you worried about it? Oh, I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm not sure I'll be able to respond to their questions. And I said, uh, and, and any somebody coming up, I would say um, the three most important words are, I don't know. I don't know. And we need to hear from you. Um, and I, when I started eight years ago, I, I, up 18 years, I was in different jobs in this organization. I only became CEO eight years ago. And I reached out to three different mentors. And the, the first lunch, I'll never forget, we were sitting and he was writing on a piece of paper. And he said, the minute you think oh, you have all the answers, your days are numbered. In the, as, as a leader. So being comfortable, it's that vulnerability again, saying, I don't know. Um, it's, it's saying to leaders, mistakes are going to happen. It's scientifically, they're going to happen. You have to be prepared for them. The biggest mistake you'll make is if people are afraid to tell you that they've made a mistake, that you have to be kept in the loop all the time. And how you respond, I always say as a leader, people cue on you, cue off you. So when somebody comes to you with a mistake, try and take a big deep breath because you want them. It's kind of like your kids. You want them to keep coming to you. It's not the mistake, the issue. It's the repair and not being part of the loop. And and just feeling like you got to be perfect. Like we are we are just human beings. And so that's that's what I would say to people, you know, because most of the time I really don't know what I'm doing. And Carlene said that a couple times. She said, we really, really don't know, you know, but it's, it's being brave and bold and saying, you know, and for me, it's purpose over ego and, and it's the client centric. If you're doing, and the biggest thing I've ever had, you know, mentors say when I've said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm worried about hurting somebody's feeling, or I'm worried about this. It's your ego is getting in the way of the purpose of your organization. And that's a problem. So for me, the purpose and the people are my North star. And if you keep it that way and keep yourself out of it, it's very, very helpful. What are you most curious about these days? Like, what what are you what are you learning most about about leadership or about the work that you're doing with this collaboration? What's been an aha or a, a new learning for you? 
<laughs> I don't know. What am I most curious about? I'm curious about um, what the outcomes of this are going to be. Um, we make an assumption that this is better service for people. Um, and we, we've really challenged each other about um, that's, that's, that's make sure this is a hypothesis because what if it's not? Then what's next, right? Um, I'm curious about where this could go after this. We've already started talking about what's next, what's next. I'm curious about even our old community, Jeff, about we are really in an uncertain times. And so, um, you know, that, you know, opportunity um, often is an op- or crisis is often an opportunity. So how do we use this and make sure we keep the North Star? So I'm just curious about what the next chapter is and curious about how I can make sure I keep challenging myself to stay vulnerable and stay open and stay okay with making mistakes. Let's maybe talk. We'll kind of wind things up. I've kept you guys for 45 minutes. And so I know you've got lots to do. Um, but I'm curious about the sector more broadly and some of the challenges that you see out there certainly you know resources are the the classic chronically underfunded um to to do some of the innovative work and so we end up doing lots of status quo just keep the wheels between the lines and and off we go but um more broadly what are you seeing in terms of opportunities in the sector as well as maybe some of the challenges that are unique where it feels like unique times at least in alberta with the, the where the budgets are at and where even just this morning, apparently oil is crashing as we as we're sitting here talking, and so that always always impacts Calgary and the the broader Alberta. Um, but just generally speaking, I'm I'm curious about things like staff staffing challenges and staff morale and like where we're at with that these days. Um, anything you want to talk about around opportunities that you see that we need to t- take advantage of and challenges that we're fa- we're all facing that we need to maybe collaborate. Um, to face? I actually, I think there is opportunities. Um, I agree 100% that this is a very challenging time. Um, I think it's particularly challenging in Alberta, but I've said for a very, very long time that I do not feel nonprofits often reach the potential of what they have the expertise and professionalism to do and ability to do. So I think this is an opportunity to think outside the box of really looking at what how we could reshape the nonprofit sector. Um, I think it probably will, with limited resources, result in much deeper collaborations and possibly even mergers, uh, because I think res- shared resources is going to have to be the answer. I think that's, although challenging to do, I think it actually could be end up being a good thing. Um, I think we'll be really having different conversations around uh, that in the next year in, a lot, I think. Um the challenges, I think, are always for me around the change process for human beings. And I am a big fan of saying, and I certainly, again, haven't always did this to the level I should have, but I really am a big fan of over-communicating as much about why we're doing what we're doing as what we are doing. But change is hard on human beings. And people come into the sector uh, with you know, an understanding that they'll probably have a less of an income and, and a lot of heart uh, hurts uh, in terms of working in this sector, but they come in because they truly care and they want to make a difference. So they do have feel and ownership and, and a, a bond and an engagement with their clients and patients. So I think telling them that we're going to remove that somewhat and have more of a navigation at the community level has to be managed well. And I, again, have will say we haven't always been uh, we haven't always did that to the best of our ability, but if I look at, for example, the ICAR model of change management, um, we always thought awareness, you know, desire and, and knowledge was really the cornerstone of change and did definitely miss the mark on the reinforcement, like to really reinforce, you know, the support uh, at the level of the staff. So I think the journey has to include an equal weight of caring for your staff as well as your clients. Uh, it can't be one or the other, and I don't think anyone in the sector would say that, but I think we really have to walk that talk carefully because I think there's going to be a lot of change to come. And again, I will say I think some of it's going to be a really good thing, but I think how we manage that change is absolutely critical for people feeling valued and not just overburdened. You mentioned the oil crash. It's funny. I heard that first thing this morning, and I've been thinking a lot about um, staff. And you talked about taking care of staff and change management. And as leaders in our sector, um, how do we uh, support each other through this? Because they are uncertain, and you use the word unique 
times. Um, and so I, I reflect a lot about how should I be acting? What should I be doing? Because I think at the end of the day, the same as with our clients, social connection and relationship is what is going to get us through. So as leaders, I'm just reflecting a lot about that. And opportunities, you know, when the stock market crashes, people who have a lot of money start buying. <laughs> but if you have no money or no social capital, it feels very, very, very stressful. So similar to the people we serve, you know, this crash doesn't impact them. They were poor before they were poor after. Um, it's the people that work for us as well. How do we ensure that they're resilient through all of this? And I actually would say those three words, I don't know, but uh, I, I think about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of uncertainty is is one of the main drivers of fear and i think when people can't see kind of what's the point of this change like what's going to be different what's the impact going to be and why are we choosing to do it this way i always found myself trying to answer those two questions anytime i was trying to change anything for my staff team it's like here's the point really clearly this is how it's connected back to what we care about and we're going to do it this way because it's the most efficient or it's the most effective or it's the the fastest like whatever the the reasoning was behind that i found that um, when we're missing one of those two pieces that uncertainty starts to creep in like i can see where you're taking us but i can't see how like how you're connecting and one of our hopes is that at the end of our collaboration we will have a binder of a how-to uh, very, very detailed, and we have a lot of resources tied to doing that. So my hope is that that binder could be a how-to that would lower the fear of what does true collaboration look like and is there a possibility of merger and kind of put it into a step. So, I mean, that's that's a big step if other people have are fearful but have a desire. Well, let's, let's wrap it up. I know you've got stuff to do. So um, where can we learn more about, let's start with CFS, Catholic Family Services. Where, where You can phone me. My, my phone number and email is on the website, or you could look at www.cfs-ab.org if you want. Same with our website, uh, cupscalgary.com. It has a lot of our programs, a lot of our purpose, a lot of our, has our collaboration to some degree. Um, And come for a tour. Come see one or both of our organizations and we'll talk in more detail about any particular interest people have. But uh, we love getting people through to get a much deeper understanding of what actually we're doing. If you have a really important question, call Carlene. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you again both for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited about this collaboration because it's been a long time coming and I see the opportunity for it to to impact a lot of people and a lot of other organizations. Um, So good job and thank you so much. You've been listening to Powerful with myself, Jeff Coulard. I'm your host and Carlene Donnelly of Cups Calgary and Patricia Jones of Catholic Family Services. And to learn more about both of those organizations, just head on over to their website so you can find the links in the show notes. As always, I definitely appreciate you sharing this podcast with your friends and your family and your colleagues and spreading the word because the goal here is to have a bigger impact in the world and to tell some of the stories of the great work that's happening in both the nonprofit sector, uh, but in the world at large. And certainly this collaboration between Cups Calgary and Catholic Family Services is something that we should be leaning towards and working towards as a sector around collaboration and serving the people that we care about in deeper more meaningful ways for more episodes like this you can head on over to www.jefffcouillard.com and click on the listen to the podcast link at the top of the page and it'll take you to a bunch of different episodes with a bunch of fascinating people where we talk about all kinds of different things related to power and life in general so thanks again for listening and have a wonderful week